Imagine you are in the throne room of grace. It's the end. The final judgment has come. And friend, if you are appealing to anything but the finished work of Christ on your behalf, you are ruined. You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Thank you, Pastor Micah. Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Ryan Tansky. I'm a member here at King's Cross along with my wife, Roxanne, with our two children, Theodore and Ophelia. And it is an honor and a privilege to be here to open God's word with you all this morning and to faithfully proclaim what he has for us. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have that you have given to us so graciously that we can study your word, we can deep drinkly from the cisterns of your goodness, Father. Help us understand the text today. Let the Spirit illuminate our hearts and our minds. In his name we pray. Amen. I've titled today's teaching, A Contrast in Standards. Jesus here in the, this section of the Sermon on the Mount has continually contrasted teachings that the Jewish people, as well as the religious leaders of that day, were promulgating. Time and time after one another, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, and then he gives a clear standard for what he is explaining. But before we get to our text, I do want to just hit the pause button briefly and give us a reminder of what the the book of Matthew is about. As we all know, there's four gospels, four different accounts, four different audiences. You've perhaps heard it said that the gospel of Mark was written to Roman converts and skeptics. He took that perspective. Or perhaps the gospel of Luke was written to the Gentiles and as an apologetic for his friend Theophilus. Perhaps you've heard that the gospel of John was directed towards the skeptic of Jesus' divinity to show that he was indeed not only the Son of God, but he was himself God incarnate. That brings us to Matthew. And I want us to see, draw our attention to the fact that Matthew is a very Jewish book. Matthew was written and directed towards the Jews, not just as a people, but addressing the culture. This book is steeped in Jewish thought, steeped in Jewish tradition. Many of the analogies that Jesus brings to the, to the forefront have some type of Jewish undertone behind them. And I would argue that this book, the intended audience, is towards the covenant-breaking Jews and their religious leaders. So often when we approach these texts, especially a famous text like the one we're reading today, And even the Sermon on the Mount in general, we are missing some of the context that a first century Jew would be privy to. Not meaning that you and I are deficient, that we need some extra biblical source to fully understand this, but it's just a tool, a good hermeneutic that we should have, a good lens that we should view this book through. What we overly tend to do is make this book, make Jesus' teachings only about that, his teachings or 
Some have argued only about his lineage, his kingship. But when we put these teachings, when we put his lineage, when we put the kingdom in context, it might take on a bit of a different dimension. Though Matthew is indeed a book directed towards the Jews, and you could call it a Jewish book, it ends as a Christian book. And these are things that I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we walk through Matthew's gospel from here all the way until the very end. And I think it might help us categorize and slot certain things and have certain understandings that um, we might miss if we don't take the time to keep that thought in our forefront. So for our time in the word this morning, we're going to be looking at one singular point that we're going to see come up over and over again. And that's this, the contrast between man's standards and God's standards. And we're going to see this idea, this concept come to a crescendo in verse 48. So with that being said, let us turn to our text today. Verses 43 through 44, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus here is going to the heart of a matter as he's been doing over and over and over again through this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. He continues to cut through the noise and to make a sharp contrast between the common knowledge of the day and the standards of our Lord. But before we get to the actual substance of what Jesus is saying, I think it's helpful for us to take a breather and ask ourselves, who had the people heard this from? Whose teaching is this? Who is popularizing this type of message that it would have been common knowledge throughout all of Judea? Now, some contemporaries have mistakenly said, well, Jesus, what he's doing is he's making a contrast between his teachings and Moses' teachings. He's highlighting the spirit of the law, whereas Moses was highlighting the letter of the law. But this is incorrect. And this is a thought that we should banish from our minds. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus' own words, he says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Same chapter, verse 18. He says that not one of the smallest aspects of the law will pass away before the earth passes away. And also then in verse 19, Jesus states that whoever relaxes a single regulation of the law will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I believe many well-meaning Christians take this view incorrectly and they think that Moses and Christ are at odds with one another. But this cannot be further from the truth. We must firmly hold to this idea that God is a God of unity. He does not change. And that goes for his word. Though there are indeed issues in the Old Testament that you and I need to work through and wrestle with, but we need not behave like God is some type of schizophrenic. God is in no way different than the God found in the Old Testament versus the God found in the New. And in fact, Malachi 3.6 simply states this, the Lord does not change. He's what theologians would call immutable meaning he cannot change. It is a part of his very nature not to change. If he could change, he would no longer be God. 
This is a very central doctrine that you and I must hold as precious. So that then begs the question, who then is Jesus directly countering? What is he engaging with here? And to no surprise, as we're going to see throughout all the book of Matthew, he is engaging with the false teaching of the religious leaders of that day. He is directly going against the scribes and the Pharisees and the perceived Jewish culture as a whole. That is a very important distinction to be made. Those teachers had a very nasty habit of twisting scripture to suit them or their perspective. They would distort the law to garner fame and prominence and influence for themselves. They were fully corrupt, leading people astray, poisoning the true teaching of God's words for their gain. And as we're going to see probably in many months, perhaps even a year, in Matthew 23, Jesus has a scathing rebuke to the Pharisees and the scribes. Completely burns it to the ground and it's one that I would recommend that you go read. But this rebuke is needed. This rebuke was timely because their corrupt teachings were therefore doing what? Leading others astray, corrupting others. And this is a very serious issue. So when we approach this teaching, that's the lens that we need to approach it from. It wasn't that they were taking an aspect of the law and extrapolating it. No, they were making it out of whole cloth. So when we engage with verses 43 and 44, I think we also need to be honest with ourselves that this law, this statement, it seems pretty innocuous, right? We're to love those that love us. We're to cherish those that we call our neighbor. And to the Jewish speaking, the, your neighbor was a fellow Jew. But our enemies, we were to avoid them. We were to hate them, have nothing to do with them, wash our hands. If we saw them coming our way, we'd go the other direction. But this we see is the standard of man in operation. This is indeed, not just back in the first century, but today, this is also how the world operates. We've all heard it said, when someone crosses you, you get even. Someone who opposes you, they should be hated and rejected and removed out of your life. They're toxic. If you get hit, hit them back twice as hard. Which is a saying that you can find in Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal. Fun fact. What is ironic is that there is no biblical law or text that one can point to to justify why the Jews and the religious leaders were teaching this. None whatsoever. And to give you an example of the contrary, all one has to do is go to Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 through 5. It states this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall kill it where it stands. No, that is not what it says. It says, you shall bring it back to him. Interesting. Continuing on, he says, if you see the donkey of one who hates you, Lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. There's a ton more examples where you see how the Jews were supposed to treat the stranger, how they were supposed to treat the sojourner, how they were supposed to treat the foreigner, even those that were their enemies. And you will not ever find a place where it says, hate your enemy. 
Now, to be fair, there are places in Scripture, many places in Scripture, actually, where it states that God hates the wicked. God hates the sinner. God hates his enemies. But you and I, we're not God. We are not the holy judge of all earth. Yes, we are to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. And yes, we should confront the sinner with his sin, but in no way are we ever commanded to hate our enemies. So here then we see the contrast. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, what does it mean to love your enemies? The Greek word here for love, it means to wish well, to take pleasure in, to long for, to esteem. These are very positive things that you are to do in regards to your enemy. And when Jesus says to pray for our enemies, pray for those that persecute you, this is something of honor. It's something that you do and that you reserved for your closest friends and those that you esteem. Think of all the times throughout the Old Testament where a blessing was given and it could not be revoked. It's that type of status. But I think if you and I are being honest, if we're truly being honest with ourselves, we may tend to identify closer with man's standard than with God's. And I would argue that this is actually normal. Because apart from Christ, apart from our regenerated nature, this is the default. Apart from Christ, we cannot actually do this. Apart from the empowering of God's spirit without a change in our nature, this is impossible. In our wickedness, we very well might indeed be praying for those who persecute us. But I would wager that it's praying that they would get hit by a truck, not that the Lord would bless them and keep them and give them abundance. It's not that he would change them, that he would save them. You see, how we love our enemies truly is the same way that God loves us, by giving us and giving them the gospel. I've heard it said that there are three ways that you can get rid of of an enemy. The first is you can destroy them. The second is you can join them. You can compromise. Or the third is you can convert them. Is that not how God has dealt with us? Is that not how Christ has dealt with us? Now, some of you might in the back of your minds be having that internal lawyer come up, well, does this mean that I can't defend myself or does this mean that I'm just a doorstep and I let everyone walk all over me and it seems that this passage has sparked endless debates about how we can or can't treat somebody or how we should or should not view somebody but I believe that this misses the point entirely. Jesus is not getting on about a merely outward display. What he is getting at is something to do with an inward disposition. I think the famous or well-known phrase, I can walk gum and chew, got that backwards, I can chew gum and walk at the same time applies here. Just because I love my enemy does not mean that I let him get away with murder. On the contrary, I do not excuse his behavior, I confront it. Because I love my enemy, I confront his sin with the law. 
I seek to administer to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then I pray that the Lord would save him, turning my enemy now into my brother. And look at then two reasons why Jesus says, why he calls us to do this. Verse 45. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends his reign on the just and the unjust. Seems kind of a strange thing to say, does it not? Let's deal with the second part of that verse first because I think there's some really good things that we can glean from it. Is Jesus saying we're to love our enemies because God makes the sun shine on them, gives them a little tan, and he sends the rain to water their plants. Is that what Jesus is saying? I heard one. No, that is not what he's saying. What I believe that Jesus is making a reference here to is a statement about the imago Dei. It's Latin for the image of God. Flashback with me to the very beginning. When God made man, whose image was that man made in? God's. When God finished his work, what was the pronouncement? It was very good. It was very good. See, we far too often dehumanize our enemies by removing God's image from their likeness. We forget that God created them. We forget that God provides for them. We forget that God cares for them. Though our enemies may very well be wicked, vile, disgusting, and downright evil, nowhere in scripture do we find that they are made in the imago satanatis, the image of Satan. Yes, we need to confront that they are children of wrath. Yes, they are operating towards their nature, but in no way are we told to hate them. God is indeed sovereign over all of his creation, in fact, he is such a good God that he blesses his enemies. He provides for those that oppose him. And you and I are testaments of that. I can't help but cringe when I hear the atheists wrestle with, well, if God's so good, then why do bad things happen? Why is there evil in the world? And it's sad because that, that poor atheist, he's so wrapped up in himself that he can't see that the question that he's asking gives his game away completely. He should not be asking how come bad things happen if God is good. He should be asking how come good things happen if I believe that God is so bad. If he is truly this moral monster, then why do I experience joy? Why do I have good friends and family? Why do I experience fresh air every day? They never want to wrestle with that question because they hate him and they're opposed to him. The second point that Jesus is saying is one about our nature. When we love our enemies, and I mean our as in Christians, when we love our enemies, it shows that we have been changed. It proves our election. It proves that we are indeed adopted sons and daughters of God. Because we stated earlier that this task, loving our enemies, is impossible to do without a nature change, this also means that when we do love our enemies, we are acting like God himself. 
God often uses our adversaries to further mold us into the image of Christ. And this is why Jesus calls us sons of God when we operate like this. Because in the same way that our children are a reflection of the parents, so should we also be a reflection of our heavenly father. Notice with me quickly though, what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying, if you love your enemies, then you will become sons of God. That's not what he's saying at all. Now it's easy for us to think transactionally about this, but we must remember that this is a statement about the nature, the very nature of the one who is loving. You and I, as Christians, we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by loving our enemies. Christians love their enemies because they are Christians, not because they are becoming or trying to earn the status of Christian. It's a very delicate distinction. We obey not for our salvation, but we obey as evidence of our salvation. Jesus then continues unpacking for us verses 46 and 47. He says, and again, remember, Jewish book, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Then a collective shiver. Oh, tax collector, disgusting. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the uncircumcised heathens, the ones that do not have the law of God, do not they do the same? What is Jesus getting at here? He's continuing to undermine the perceptions of the Jews. So many of us, just like the Jews in the first century, thought we were good. But Jesus blows that notion apart. We might be tempted to think that we are good because we love those that love us. We greet those that we are friendly, friendly with. As a Jew, we might be thinking, or the first century Jew might be thinking, well, I have Abraham as my father and I love my, my brothers of Abraham and my sisters of Abraham. I take care of them. But Jesus is saying, what reward do you have? Do not the corrupt and evil tax collectors who are betrayers of your brethren, do not even they do this with all of their corruption and filth and greed? Even they do this. What about the one that you despise as the heathen, the Gentile, the one who has no law, who has not been entrusted the oracles of God? What about them? Even they do this. You think you're special, but you're not. It is super easy to love people who love you, is it not? Loving your neighbor is really nothing to be impressed with because literally everybody does this to some extent. Now, this does not detract away from when Christ says that the law hinges on two points, love God and love neighbor. We can talk about that later. But in this context, loving your neighbor does not earn you anything. And what I'd like to extend is a question. What if we have the wrong definition of neighbor? You see, the Jews had an affinity for other Jews. The Gentiles were anathema. Tax collectors were turncoats. So they had much love 
for their brethren and for their, for their people. But the question is here, what if that small, narrowly defined neighbor, what if that category is completely wrong? What if that category is much broader? And we all know the famous story found in Luke 10 about the Good Samaritan. Now this story came to, came to be because a man asked Christ, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. He says, oh, I've done that. And then he goes, love your neighbor as yourself. He goes, oh, I've done that too. And then he asks the follow-up question. Teacher, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And so what ends up happening, Jesus tells this parable of a man who's going on a business trip, kisses his wife, has all of his money. He's going out for a long time. And on the road, this man is beaten. He's robbed. He's left for dead. He's left destitute. There's no way he can save himself. He's toast. No ambulance coming in first century Judea. That's not how this works. And so along comes a priest who's the moral leader of the day. And he sees the man. He goes, oh, he rightly deduces something bad happened here. But instead of him looking at his kin, looking at his fellow blood and helping him, what does he do? He goes on the other side of the road. He crosses. Stay away. I can't be unclean. Don't you know I'm a priest? Unbelievable. Don't you know the law, man? So next we see our second contender, a Levite. He comes up. Says the same, same thing. Deduces it rightly. This man has been assaulted. He's in dire need. But what does he do? Same thing. Other side of the road, passes on. So now it's looking pretty grim for this dude. Until a Samaritan. Samaritans would have been referred to by Jews as dogs, by the way. If any contention, if there was any enemies in the first century, yes, the Jews hated the Romans, but oh, they hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated them. Rightly so. Lots of bitter conflict, lots of tension there. What does the Samaritan do though? Does he see like the other two Jews and then cross on the other side? No. He stops. He cares for the man. He binds up his wounds, takes him to an end, fronts the bill, and then comes back to check on him. So what is Jesus getting at here? What is Jesus making a statement of? He's saying, look, that narrowly defined little circle that you've placed around, quote unquote, your neighbor, your enemies in that. Bet you didn't see that one coming. And this, folks, why it is so important that we have right doctrine and why we are so careful about what type of doctrine we allow our ears to hear. The Jewish people had been completely bamboozled by the teaching of the religious leaders. And this was not just an overnight thing. This is many, many, many generations of compromise and slippage. There was no care for those who were outside, despite that being the very reason why God formed the people of Israel and placed them amongst foreign nations, that they would be a light, that they would go out and tell of the oracles of God. The Jews traded God's perfect law and his standards for the standards of man. Plain and simple. Now we can grant that the task of loving our enemies is indeed a hard one, even for those who are Christians and who have been transformed 
by God's power. But like all things, excuse me, in the Christian life, we have the perfect example. We have Christ. And we look to him and how he has loved us. Is Christ not the good Samaritan? Did he not see us when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sin and fully throated in our rebellion? Were we not beaten and battered and without hope? Were we not by nature children of wrath with nothing but hatred for our maker? Were we not far off and hostile to the covenants and promises of God? We were. In fact, we were God's enemies at one point. And yet, God reached down and gave you and I new life. Instead of wrath, he extended grace and mercy and he made us new creatures in himself. We're now his workmanship. Those who are enemies of God are now seated at his table as sons, as daughters, as heirs to his kingdom. Scripture states as we read in our time of worship, Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's slightly change that. While we were yet God's enemies, Christ died for us. He could have destroyed us. He could have given us the law and righteously sentenced each and every one of us to eternal separation from him. However, he chose to give grace and offer his son in our place. Christ drank every drop of God's wrath that was reserved for us. He also then exchanged our sin for every ounce of his righteousness. This church is how we love our enemies. We love them in the same way that God has loved us. Think of where you would be today had Christ not extended himself towards you? Had he not plucked you out of your sin and your filth? Just think of where that sin would have led you. We must not have an attitude of hardness towards those who are our enemies. Notice with me though, to love your enemies presupposes something. It presupposes that you do indeed have them. But Ryan, didn't you not just say, you know, the circle is here, that was your enemy, and my enemies were outside the circle, and then didn't Jesus say that it's a larger thing now? Yes, he did. But as Christians, you and I, we do indeed have enemies. Yes, they are our neighbor, but we must rightly define them as what they are. And I would even argue, if you are a Christian and you don't have enemies, I would take stock. The world hates our God. And the world hates his children. They hate Christ and his grace, and by extension, they hate those who bear his name. Yet, we are called to extend the gospel towards them and pray that the Lord would bless them. These are hard words. The sentence, but by the grace of God, there go I should forever be on the tips of our lips, should forever be cemented in the forefront of our mind. Because brother, sister, let me tell you, had not God's grace 
intervened in your life, you would be the crazy pink-haired feminist. You would be the crazy militant atheist. But by the grace of God, there go I. And finally, this leads us to our last verse, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now this last verse is in the context of not only what we're talking about today, but all the verses preceding it. This is a break in Jesus' sermon. The therefore is there for a reason. But I will argue that there is a little bit of disagreement about this verse. And it's actually from the Greek word that means or is translated here in English as perfect. Virtually every other instance that this word is used, it is translated as mature. But I don't think that makes sense here simply because of the text itself. Is Jesus really saying, hey, be mature as in fully grown, rightly minded, because God is fully grown and rightly minded? I don't think so. Some would argue that because this word is basically always translated as mature, that's what Jesus is getting at. He's not, he's not saying you have to be sinless. And I do think there is merit in this argument. I do think that there are good things that we can glean from this argument. Of course, we should be mature and fully grown in our Lord. But I do not think it's dealing with the word plainly in its context. Our ears should have a familiar ring in the back. We should be hearing a loose callback to Leviticus, to Deuteronomy, where God on many, many, many occasions states that his people are to be what? For he is holy. God's people are to be like him. So I think Jesus here, the translators get it right. He is saying perfect. And the temptation through the entirety of what Jesus has been teaching on is for the hearer to think, you know what? I, I kind of am reaching that standard. I, I haven't divorced my wife. I don't swear falsely. I, I've never committed adultery. But again, they're missing the point. It should be abundantly clear to anyone who has eyes or ears that we horribly miss the mark. These are indeed damning words that none of us can attain. These words ought to bring us dread for who can be perfect. Think about everything that Jesus has taught upon and covered so far. We fail to love our enemies and we make carve-outs for our neighbors only. We retaliate to those who cross us. We swear falsely to show false piety or devotion. We constantly put our selfishness first and we divorce our partners. We are full of lust and corrupt desires. We are full of anger and strife and murder. We constantly skirt around God's laws. We often lose our saltiness and put our lights under a bushel out of cowardice. And friends, we are not described by the Beatitudes. You and I are far from perfect just like those first century listening Jews to Christ on the mountain. And this brings us back to our main point. 
the standards of God are far above the standards of man. There is no hope for man found in himself. This begs the question though, how are we to be perfect? How are we to be holy like the Lord is holy? And the answer is the gospel. As I stated before, you and I, the righteousness, the privileges that we enjoy as Christians is an alien privilege. It is an alien righteousness. It is not one that you and I earned. It is not one that you and I deserve. It is a free gift of salvation that God extends to those whom he loves, those who he has foreknew, those that he elected. And this is a beautiful, absolutely beautiful doctrine to rightly understand. This means you can't do anything to earn. You cannot do anything to reach this standard. You will fail time and time and time again. It must be achieved by another on your behalf. Imagine you are in the throne room of grace. It's the end. The final judgment has come. And friend, if you are appealing to anything but the finished work of Christ on your behalf, you are ruined. If you approach that throne room and you say, look, God, I was good. I didn't cheat on my wife. I gave to the church. I showed up every Sunday. I gave a cup of water in your name. I clothed those who were cold. I casted out demons in your name. It's not going to cut it. It is only the one who is covered and clothed in the blood of Christ. Christ is the perfect one. Christ is the true Jew. Christ is our example. He's the one we cling to. So then how can we practically apply this in our lives as we go about living for the kingdom of God? Now that we rightly understand what Christ is saying, how can we practically therefore then excuse me, as Christians love our enemies. I have three points and we'll close. The first one is this. It's called manifest destiny. Now, some of you might be saying like, sounds weird, a little new agey. It's not. It was a phrase that was coined by Christian settlers here in America. And the idea was that Christians should go forth they should engage with the heathen. They should engage with the enemies of God to extend his glory by converting those enemies into friends. If you Google the term, secularists will slander this idea that it was just about America's dominance and taking over everybody or it was a white nationalistic movement by white guys that hated the Native Americans and wanted to kill them. But that's far from the truth. The idea is this, that where the gospel has not yet gone, by definition, those are God's enemies. And until the gospel goes forth, until they have been conquered for the name of Christ, they will remain God's enemies. This is not a call or a conversion by the violence of war, but by the preaching of the gospel. And this is an attitude that I believe the church needs to recover 
If you've been coming here for longer than two weeks, I'm sure you've picked up that King's Cross Church has a strong emphasis on being a global church and taking the gospels to the ends of the earth. And I want to commend you, brother or sister, if you are feeling that nudge, if you are feeling like the Lord is calling you to that type of ministry, don't drown that out. Please go talk to Micah. Schedule a time with him. Get confirmed. Get training. Manifest destiny. For those of us that are domestic, this still applies. It applies in your workplaces. It applies in your homes. It applies in your friend groups. For those of you that know me and my wife, we have a, a strong desire to serve overseas uh, in Japan. And I'm not going to bore you to death with details and why, and why we think we're called to do that. Um, but I will say this. I've lived there. Their culture is wicked. And I'm not saying that because I'm an American and I have my own culture. Our culture is not that, bad, that great either, <laughs> if we're being honest. But the reason why it's wicked, the reason why they are so lost and why they're in such a pitiable state is that they do not have the gospel. They do not honor Christ. And that eats me up as it should eat you up. The second way that we can love our neighbor, or excuse me, love our enemies, is by having a thick skin. The enemies we face are indeed crafty. They will seek to bring you down in any way possible. They will insult you. They will provoke you. They will even attack you. But you must be ready. You must have that thick skin. Be ready for the conflict. Be ready for the attack. Be ready for the unsaved boss at work to be a jerk, for the unsaved manager to give you a hard time, for the unsaved militant atheist to be rude towards you. Because friends, whether you like it or not, every single Christian has been conscripted in the army of our Lord and we have very, very clear marching orders. So I want to encourage you, do not falter, fellow brother. Do not weary of doing good, fellow sister. But look to Christ and all of the riches that he provides to us to sustain us through the blows and to gird up our loins when temptation comes. Lastly, love sacrificially. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22 states this, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, Give him water to drink for you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Loving our enemies is going to require service and sacrifice. There are times, yes, where we must rebuke our enemy sharply, but there are also times where we must cook him a meal if we were only rebuking, we will grow callous and we will grow cold. But sacrificially going out of your way for the one whom opposes you, now that is miraculously something Christian. And history is replete with martyrs who faced death and yet did not curse their enemies, did not hate their enemies, but instead prayed for them. Men like John Huss before the Reformation. 
There are examples of saints who had opportunities to get even with their enemies, such as Christians in POW camps in World War II, but instead they chose to extend kindness like men, or excuse me, men like Eric Lydell for the sake of the gospel. The anthem of the Christian life is simple. My life for yours, even for our enemies. Now folks, please do not hear me and think that this is something that you can accomplish in your own strength. You cannot. Please do not hear me and think that if you are not a Christian, you're just gonna love your enemy so good and the Lord's gonna look at you and he's gonna be so happy with you. It's not the case. You're just gonna be on a spinning wheel, the hamster wheel of law keeping and law breaking and law keeping and law breaking. There will be no hope for you. The only way we can accomplish these things is through the finished work of Christ, the empowering of his spirit, and through trusting that the Lord will sustain us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the clarity that it provides. Lord, I pray that you would uproot in us any spirit of maliciousness, of anger, of strife, of ethnicism, that we would remove them from us, Father, that you would strain us to love our enemies, that you would give us opportunities to love our enemies, not just our neighbors. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness, that we would speak your truth, your gospel, that, Lord, we would not destroy our enemies, and heaven forbid that we would join our enemies, but, Lord, that we would indeed be the instruments that you use to convert them. We thank you for everything that you have done, the position that we now have, the riches that we enjoy, all by the work of your son. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.